God's Word in Joshua chapter 20. Today we're looking at cities of refuge as pictures of justice and mercy. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 20, that's great. I do think it's super helpful to be looking along the way at God's Word. We have it up on uh, the PowerPoint as well. Nonetheless, a big benefit for, for you to follow along too. So let's take a look at this together. And this is how the text reads. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home, home in the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan of Jericho, they, they designated Bezer in the desert on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any sojourner living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. This is the word of God. Hope he adds his blessing to it as we look into it just a bit this morning. Uh, kids, you know, you might be going on a trip sometime. Let's pretend you have a sibling. Uh, there's two of you in the, in the back seat. I don't know if parents have ever had this experience before where there's kind of an imaginary line that's drawn, right? You say, you stay on this side and your, your brother or sister will stay on that side. You're familiar with this, right? I mean, just say you can't go over into that other person's space, uh, and, and maybe there's also some sort of consequence associated with it. Like, say, for example, look, you know, if you spill over, if you take a toy from your, your brother or something like that, you've violated their boundary, then we're going to let that, uh, that brother not only get the toy back, but take one of yours as well. So let's say that happens. You take the toy from, from your brother, it's, it's Thomas the train engine or whoever, Thomas the train, train engine, Thomas, and your, your brother says, hey, mommy, you know, he took Thomas. Justice would mean that that toy is returned and follow through with the consequences, you know, you get to choose one of the other uh, siblings' toys. Mercy would be when they say, okay, return that toy, and the sibling says, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to let you go on this one. That would be very merciful. And this text talks about justice and mercy in a sort of more adult sort of way. It's not the taking of toys, but the taking of life. 
in something called manslaughter, when somebody's, accident, somebody's life is accidentally taken. But in the culture of that day, then the response would be kind of a just response would be, well, I'm going to take your life as well. But God arranges these things called cities of refuge so that justice and mercy are both met. They're both satisfied in these cities of refuge. And they're pictures of how God works. You know, this whole process of the conquest and Joshua, it's not because these people were better than anybody else. He's giving them a picture of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And the, the people of that land had not been doing it. Their sins had accumulated. And as we've already discussed, God is in his progressive revelation justly exacting judgment on the people of that land. He's doing it through a people who themselves don't really deserve to be used, but he said, I'm taking you as an example. And so that's God's economy of justice as they're taking one city after the next and establishing what's supposed to be a picture of what it looks like to walk faithfully before God. So the first part of the book of Joshua, really chapters 1 through 5, is all about getting ready to enter the land. And then the next section of Joshua that we've been in recently, 6 through 14, is the conquest of that land. And you may note that we've accelerated from chapter 10 last week all the way to chapter 20. And during that time, they finish conquesting the land. They've taken the north, south, the east, and the west, and they've begun to divide the allotments. These 12 tribes are each going to have their own space. One of the people who don't get a set of the allotments are the Levites. In Joshua chapter 21, you talk about the Levitical, the priesthood. But these cities of refuge would be places where Levites would be as well. They're to be distributed in different places. So it's odd that you would have this kind of put here. Why are these cities of refuge here? And we've already hinted at it as well. God's giving a picture of what it looks like to hold both justice and mercy out as you live in his kingdom being faithful on the journey. And that's what we want to explore this morning together. And we see that really coming right from the text, this depiction of the way God's people are to practice both justice and mercy, and, and the, the explanation of what a city of refuge is, a strategically placed location where individuals who accidentally took the life of another can find protection from being avenged while it's weighed and simultaneously experience a form of exile. There's both. There's a judgment, but there's also mercy. Now let's talk first with God's justice and how that is shown here in these cities of refuge. What we see in the beginning here is that God's justice actually has a basis. I mean, what is the basis for God's justice? And we see here in verse 2 that the basis is the law that he's revealed. Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses. If you look back at Numbers chapter 35, a couple of passages in Deuteronomy as well, God had already told Moses, who never got to the promised land, when you get there, you're going to create some places called cities of refuge. You can go back and read all about what those cities of refuge will be like. From the beginning of Joshua, we've seen that part of what Joshua and the nation of Israel is supposed to be doing is working out God's law what he's revealed to them. 
And we've talked in previous weeks a little bit about what that is. It certainly is God's moral law, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but it's more than that. It's the civic structure that's being given to how are you going to exact justice? How are you going to display mercy in the context of people living together who make mistakes? And this is what it looks like. This is a city of refuge. So this isn't just a law that's built around a social convention. It's a law built around the enduring law of God. Uh, Jesus reinforces this in the New Testament. If you don't like the Old Testament or think it applies anymore, I'm sorry, Jesus did. <laughs> he, he referred to the Old Testament all the time and said, I haven't come to set it aside but to fulfill it. So it's pointing forward to Jesus, but it's not to be just pushed under the rug. These are enduring principles built on a God who said, here's how I structure things. So where we get our law or idea, right or wrong, and we've talked about this before, oftentimes can be misguided if it's simply the soup du jour of the culture around us, whether that's social media or whatever it might be, just we have to ground it in God's law, what he says to be true, what he says to be right. And the Bible claims that's not a shifting standard, that we need something anchored and firm because otherwise you'll be a little bit like, a, like the sea and the waves and the winds of the day will blow you in a certain direction and if you're a ship, you might end up in completely the wrong place. So there is an anchoring that God's word and really Joshua has been calling us to from the beginning. If you're wondering then how should we live life? What does it look like? If you're somebody who is a person of the word, you go to God's word. And that's where the basis of the foundation for examining how do we conduct life ought to be. And all of us have some sense of there is a right and there's a wrong. The only question is where are you getting that from? What's, what's your basis for determining it? God's word again and again and even in Joshua says it's his law. You don't have to look any farther. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, anchored in his word. And so, once again, we see in these cities of refuge, the Lord saying to Joshua, designate these cities as I instructed you through Moses. It's grounded and it's rooted in the law as a reflection of the character of God. And we see the second thing is that not only does God's justice have a basis, but it measures motive in verse 3. These places are places to go so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection. So in, in these cities of refuge, there are places that God is measuring according to a law that takes into account the motive or the intent. What, why you did it does matter. I mean, if you watch your shows, you know, any mystery or solve, problem-solving Matlock in the days of old or whatever it is now, too. It's like, well, what's the motive? People don't just randomly do this kind of stuff. And here it's an accidental death. Somebody's, you know, picking up an axe to swing or something and if the head falls off and hits somebody and they die. That was, it, I didn't mean to do it. And, and you, know, you know, kids, that's a wonderful excuse to use for parents, isn't there? But it, I didn't mean to do it. You can try this out, you know, uh, if you want to. Maybe you're a teenager, you run through a red light, policeman pulls you over. I didn't mean to do it. Okay, doesn't matter. Here's the ticket. 
Your intent doesn't matter. God is taking into intent. Here, it's difficult because we don't always know motive. But what the policeman's done is right as well because we'll see there has to be a payment for something that's gone askew. But thank goodness, God takes into account motive and intent. He's baking that into the culture of these cities of refuge. We do care about what's happening on the inside. You didn't intend. So there's a different process that's happening here, but it shows God cares about the heart. I've mentioned Ginger Plowman before. I just think it's a great resource for parents. You know, wise words for moms, it's called. I'm sure it's still out there too. And she has done a great job of talking about a behavior and then a scripture that kind of exhorts you, don't do this, one that says, do this instead, and then get some questions to talk about the motive of the heart underneath it. Why did you do that? Why did you take that, Thomas the train? Is it Thomas the train? Is it Thomas the engine? What is it? Thomas the who? The tank engine. The tank engine. Okay. Why did you do that? You're exploring motives of the heart. That's actually reflective of God's, God's concern for justice also. Let's get underneath it. And these cities of refuge show that. Now, like we said, and we kind of hinted at that, and, and we see that great motive matters, but there is a payment associated with an infraction. You know, the policeman said, I appreciate you didn't mean to do, you know, the red light, so, but here's the ticket. Well, in, in some cases, maybe they'll say, oh, okay, I believe you, you're off, or something. I, I don't know what might motivate that person, but there is a just response of issuing a ticket. And here we see that there's a payment that needs to happen. In, in verse 6, if you're following along, he is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly, until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. So here's a person who has, has fled an accidental taking of the life. I mean, they have to actually go somewhere to find refuge, and they do. But how long do they stay? And God, according to his law, said, you wait until the death of the high priest. So there's some time baked in here, too. And I, I'm assuming if this happened to you, you would hope that the whole high priest is kind of old <laughs> at that point. Like, this guy's on his last leg. Uh, oh, he was just appointed, and he's 30. Years. Oh, man, that's going to be a long time here, right? But there's, some, there's, there's, there's a payment. You, something's been done, and there's a place to find refuge, but... A life was taken. And so there's an associated cost along with it. Uh, justice and mercy combined as well. Perhaps the foreshadowing of the death of the high priest too. As you would know, Christ himself is associated as our high priest. The great high priest, the book of Hebrews unpacks so much of that. Hints of a high priest that would come who dies once for all. Immediate access. Here there's a waiting period and a time that passes, and perhaps for different reasons. One is just to let the people who've been offended cool down, but the other is certainly that there's a value attached to this life and a payment that comes along with it. God's justice demands a payment. Maybe you noticed as well now in verse 7 that God's justice is very accessible. All of these cities of refuge would be within a day of travel. So 
and here's a, here's a little map here that will show uh, some, of, some of what that looked like, kind of the heat signatures, as it were. Designated cities all around the place that scholars would say, and of course the geography is different from place to place, but if you did this, you could get there within a day. So it's not like it's all located weeks down, uh, weeks down and you hope that the people aren't faster than you getting there too. I mean, the idea is they're accessible. God's not creating a structure where people can't get, have access to these places where they're seeking refuge. And as we already indicated on top of everything else, that those justice, the, the justice God's baked into these city, cities of refuge also value life. I mean, there's a, God's justice values life because you have protection for the unintended offender, but also at the same time, there's payment for the victim and the family because that person has been separated from his own for a certain length of time too. There's, there's, there's just a consequence associated with it. And that's what justice looks like. One of the things maybe you notice as well in, in verse 9 is that God's justice is all encompassing. And really by that, I mean it includes everyone. The sojourner as well. Verse 9, any of the Israelites or any sojourner living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities. It's not just the Israelite. It's people who are not yet even Israelites who are still included in the geography of this place, they too are afforded access. So God's justice is caring for a broader group than just those whom he selected here as the Israelites themselves. So you put all that together and I want to suggest that justice, and these are huge topics of consideration, but in this text means doing the right thing on the merits of a case regardless of social status. That's kind of what justice seems to mean in these cities of refuge. Doing the right thing on the merits of a case. You see, there, is a, there are merits here. There are elders of the city who are listening to the case, and they may deem the avenger of the blood can get at you because it doesn't meet the, the, the standards that we have. So there's elders who are saying, let's do the right thing on the merits of the case. And that doesn't matter if you're a sojourner or not. Giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection. And its aim is equitable treatment. And that applies individually as well as on all levels of society here in these cities of refuge, because it's not just a person, but a people, a family, a city, who are involved in that process. There's a book, Freedom, Justice, and Hope. It's a collection of essays, uh, but one of the authors here is um, scholar Pierre Bertude, who says, rather than exalting man's discretion, the law carefully limits arrogant power. It proclaims, among other things, that human life is sacred, that all men are equal before God, and that the weaker members of the community must be protected and defended. Both individual and social responsibility were emphasized. Everyone could know the rule that he who destroys human life is accountable for the crime committed. A murderer was not supposed to be able to buy his way out or use his power to escape justice. 
for religious values precede economic or political con considerations. That's an important statement. Religious values precede, come before economic or political considerations. And the religious values, in other words, are starting with, and we all, we all think we're doing this, but God's law. What is God saying? How do we conduct justice and mercy according to what God has said before economic considerations? So the question isn't, will this justice benefit me economically or politically? But is this reflecting God's heart for justice as he has defined it in his word? And I think probably if every, everybody intends perhaps on the front end to start with there and then maybe shades it according to underneath it, economic or political gain. Because we're all sinners and we all think we're right. And as soon as we all think we're completely right, you're completely wrong. Because we all have something to learn. You know, the gospel comes to any system, whether it's economic or political, and is going to critique some things as well as affirm others. There's no perfect system. If you think you've got it, then you're living in a world that is already in heaven, which those things don't even exist any longer. So we have to hold pretty, hold our convictions, but with humility. And the religious value system here too for justice and mercy is supposed to be reflecting the heart of God. So that's, that's a challenge to do, but it's something that God's justice is inviting us to do. He goes on to say significantly, the Bible provided not only for, for, not for, not only, it's important. Let me start over. The Bible provided not for survival of the fittest, but for protection of the weaker members of the community, the blind and the deaf, Deuteronomy 27, widows and orphans, also Deuteronomy 27, the foreigner, Exodus 23, the poor, Deuteronomy 15, Exodus 23, the debtor who sells himself into slavery, Deuteronomy 15, those born slaves, Exodus 23, the law requires that they be protected from oppression and exploitation. So really, it's the, the, the members of society that don't naturally receive those benefits, that those who care about God's law are running toward in terms of protection and making sure that justice and mercy wins the day and that we become, as it were, living cities of refuge as well. Justice, doing the right thing on the merits of a case regardless of social status. Uh, mercy, we've mentioned that word too, could be defined as feeling and showing compassion, even when it's not deserved. I mean, you know, it's easy for those of us who were boys growing up playing the game Mercy. Do you remember that game? With, uh, with two hands here, I could demonstrate it maybe with somebody. Stephen Popovich maybe come up here and he'd have me begging for mercy soon because he's got the grip of death. You know, and you just basically try to go like this until you, you overcome somebody else and their hands are being bent back and they're like, mercy! You don't really deserve mercy because I've conquered you. You deserve to suffer, right? That's why you say mercy. I, I, maybe I don't even know deserve, but stop. Show me compassion. And justice and mercy in these cities of refuge are combined and really they're pictures of God's justice and mercy all throughout the scriptures. If you want to, if you if enjoy reading and, and 
digging a little bit more into some of these issues, um, Keller, he's written, he's a prolific writer. He's written so many things recently. You know, he didn't start writing until he was over 50 years old because he said, I didn't think I had anything to share until I was over 50 years old. And he's made up for all the lost time in the first five decades. But he's got a book called Generous Justice that I think has a fair treatment of these issues as well. And one of the points that he makes all throughout the Bible in these two words, justice or mishpat, which is the Hebrew for it as well, it has an emphasis on action. And mercy, which actually happens to be chesed from the human perspective, has an emphasis on motive or intent. And they both matter. So one of the things, typically too, in the kind of majority Protestant world, when we look at something like Micah 8 that says, you know, do justice and, and love mercy, walk humbly with God, most of us think that we're doing justice just by talking about it. You have a conversation about justice or racial reconciliation or something, and we've done it. Most of the people on the end, however, who feel or have been oppressed and marginalized say, what are you going to do about it? Stop talking. Do something. I haven't seen you show up, or I've seen uh, policies matter more than people, or whatever the case may be. So they both, they both matter. And the Bible holds both as something that's important. We see it even in these, this text in Joshua 20. Action and motive. And I would argue that the context for building such compassion and such mercy and even what does justice look like is entering into deeper into the heart of God through relationships of mutual sacrifice and being compelled by the mercy he's shown us to do justice for the other. See, that, that, that's where the church really does come in and the church over, over his, historically has done a poor job of doing this, but it's meant to be an outpost, a city of refuge, a place where justice and mercy are held in tension. And I think it's interesting to me anyway that you actually go to a city, into a new town, and you have to stay there for a long time. That means you're going to develop relationships. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know if you were treated as an outcast, but say it's a year, two, three, 10, 20 years, you're kind of developing a new family and perhaps a new perspective on what's going on. You imagine a wonderful reunion, but also you've got new friends there too. New perspectives are being formed and it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, us as a church too, our, our vision itself, our desire to become a multi-ethnic church of influence, part of how we do that's relationships, long-term Relationships of sacrifice that aren't built solely on platitudes sent out on a tweet. But in breaking bread with somebody who's different than I am. And, and saying, help me understand what this looks like. I don't see the injustice here. Can you help me see it? In relationship? What would mercy look like? One of the great benefits for me, you know, you've heard me talk about the mosaics with an X, Cincy Network, which just became a 501c3. It was unintentionally started by, by me a, few, a handful of years ago, talking to a couple of other people saying, I know church planting's hard. What about a church that's striving to look like its community, which is not all alike? That's even harder. What are the best practices? What are the blind spots? And for eight years, on a monthly basis, we've been getting together, talking. I mostly just listen. 
and ask a lot of questions. I've learned so much, and I have so much more to learn, but it's taken me stepping toward and listening and asking a lot of questions so that when something happens, I have somebody I can go to and ask. And, and, and there's a, a relationship of trust over time built up. That doesn't happen quickly. Trust takes time and sacrifice and being there and repentance and confession and humility and probably being offended from time to time and saying, why am I offended? What's happening? It takes time. And we're trying to lean into that as best as we can, but I, I, I relish and cherish the long-term relationships that I've developed through that process. And there are many times after one of these monthly lunches where I just say, I wish my whole congregation could be here. I can't possibly articulate what's just been said. <laughs> it's not even fair. I can't do it. You get a tiny snippet of it, but not the whole. And so part of the opportunity we have is to enter into those relationships and to, and to gather around with each other. I mean, we had our first lunch afterwards and, you know, it, it was great. It was, it was crowded. It was full. It was beautiful. There were some lingering conversations. Last night at the open house, same thing, a smaller crew, but some chance to get caught up and talk about life. We're not going to have in August, uh, or at least, in, I'm sorry, in July, we're not going to have our post-service lunch. So why not make that opportunity to stop somebody today and say, will you come to my house? Or if you're the kind of person who doesn't like preparing food, will you invite me to your house so that I can enjoy your fellowship? I mean, pursue each other. These are the relationships. This is the starting point right here. That's why we exist. Don't waste the opportunity. And don't keep these issues out there when they're right here. Justice and mercy, what does it look like? How do we do it? And more importantly, perhaps, we need to remember that we're compelled by God's mercy to us. When I say that these mutual sacrifice, great, but the, the compulsion underneath it is the mercy God has shown us himself. It's not just justice for the other for the sake of something. You know, I, I actually don't like the word social justice. I, I think it's an okay word, but it's not, it's not comprehensive enough. Biblical justice includes social justice, but it's not limited to social justice. And social justice may be driven by cultural things, but not God's law. Biblical justice cares about that. The problem, of course, with the church is what was, what's called now social justice has often been set aside. Biblical justice doesn't allow that if we're being true to what God's word has put forward. And I think a city of refuge is a great picture of that as well. It's deeper, more meaningful. Oftentimes we sacrifice or stop before we ought to. So we're pursuing biblical justice together in mercy and some of that's just exposure. You know, Juneteenth, if you don't know what that is, it's probably important to the people who are African Americans in our congregation. June 19th. It's important. A whole bunch of years ago, when that's Emancipation Day, slaves set free, truly, finally, in Texas, the, the news got out. June 19th, celebrated. And if, if you want to dip your toes a little bit, you know, we, we do some things with Undivided and Living Undivided We'll have a June, Juneteenth celebration on, on June 19th. You can look it up on Facebook. 
living and divided. After the, the uh, George Floyd verdict, I hopped on just to be part of what they were saying. How do we mourn? How do we worship? How do we understand and move forward? It was a beautiful time of worship with that undivided family. Same thing for Juneteenth. If you want to get a little sense of that, if it's something new to you, just dip your toes in the water and see that the church does care about this stuff. Little C and big C. I, I believe there's hope and there's progress being made and we ought to care about these things called justice and mercy. And God, that's because God's mercy has been given to us so much. You know, you think about Paul who said at the very end of his life, he talked about God's mercy to him. I am the chief of all sinners, but God displayed his unlimited patience in me his unlimited mercy, I didn't deserve it. He took me out, the chief of all sinners, the one who didn't care at all about the things of God. And he made me an example for others. In the gospel, of course, the good news of Christ, we see God's mercy displayed most clearly. Because, I, I, you know, we're the offender. And we've sinned with intent. So in God's justice, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? What have we earned? I mean, you're a good person, sure. But God's, in God's economy, if you've sinned once, the penalty is death. And the gospel makes it clear, we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. We will never measure up, even if you're unaware of it. But let's face it, most of the time you probably do intend to sin. You might baptize it and make it look really pretty and justified, but it isn't. And that sin is offensive to God. In God's justice, you deserve death. Eternal separation from him. You don't deserve to experience anything besides what's due to you. What have you earned according to justice? What's the right thing in the merits of the case? Hell. Separation from God. What do you get if you, if you believe in Christ? Do you get mercy? Do you get compassion shown to you? Even when it's not deserved? Who's the one person who didn't deserve death? Jesus. He was completely perfect. The most unjust thing then happens on the cross where Christ, who was perfect, takes on your account and says, I will die in your place. And therefore, there's an aspect of God's justice, and we know it ourselves, too, that when we go forward and say, that's not fair, we need to stop and look at ourselves and say, but we've gotten what we don't deserve. In, in, our, in our efforts to do what is just and right, we ourselves have received unlimited patience, unlimited mercy. You see, at just the right time, Paul said, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not when you're in a position of power or influence. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, we were the ones fleeing to a city of refuge who should have been avenged. That's what we deserved. But he became us. 
He became, as it were, the scapegoat on whose sins everybody's placed, and he received the punishment we ought to receive. If you understand that gospel, it's a total leveling ground, and our heart for the world and for the other ought to be one of absolute starting point of grace and mercy. It's just that we have received grace upon grace, and that takes away the sting we feel sometimes of maybe right justice too when we approach the other because the other is us we are the other and when christ has died breaking down the dividing wall of, ho of hostility no longer is the other person you're looking at the other they're your brother and your sister and we together are the other who have been brought and bought by the blood of christ now how that all works out obviously is difficult or we'd have a ton of solutions and everybody would be rightly aligned but that's where we're headed and and, and to me then it's it's being compelled by the mercy we've been shown to do justice for the other we've been shown that in the gospel and we have the opportunity to do that in the concept context of relationships so let's not waste that opportunity and Jay mentioned I, I by it's a gracious gift, even just a beginning. Redeemer, with July and people traveling, I said it probably is good in my rhythm to take kind of July off to recharge, and that's a gift that's been given to me. Didn't happen last July for anybody. It was all so strange, but I'll get a chance for a few weeks to, to step away and to, to refresh, and there'll be some visiting preachers, Ashish Pushkaran, July 4th, Delano Robinson, July 11th, and then July 18th, our very own Eric Ulianto, and then Dave Dupee on July 25. And I'll, I'll get, get around a little bit. Not sure if I'll be seen or not around here, but, but those are going to be opportunities to hear from other voices as well. Uh, somebody who's Indian, African-American, you know, somebody who's from Indonesia. And then just a white dude the last time. <laughs> Dave, Dave Dupree. A good friend. And we have the chance to lean into those relationships, and I hope we're doing that. And to ask more questions and work it out. We're committed to doing it. It's not easy. But we're doing it out of, out of this motive and from this starting point. We have nothing to fear in that respect. So maybe it's obvious to you then, based on this verse, that Christ is our city of refuge, that he's both the one who was the offend, offended and the offender in the economy of God, but the city of refuge at the same time. We flee to him. We have to run to Christ again, even as we don't understand how these things work out. As long as we're headed there, we're headed in the right direction. I'm going to close by uh, praying a prayer of Francis of Assisi. Uh, you might be familiar with this. I think it's a fitting prayer. Uh, one that I'll pray through from, from time to time as well with all this in mind. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. Let's stand.